0: All right, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, it reads like this. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you were rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in a prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Um, yeah, Father, we thank you that even though you've left us in this world with pain and problems, you have not left us in this world without your promises. Help us to hear them. Help us to believe you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your seats. Um. I am incredibly nearsighted. Um, Worn glasses since the fourth grade and when you're that young, uh, you don't discover that you're nearsighted. You're diagnosed in a sense. So it's not like you just wake up one day and you say, I think I need glasses. You just miss so much stuff. You assume that everybody's eyesight is kind of blurry until you sit and you take that eye test. And then as you sit and take that eye test and you struggle to identify the letters as they go down, um, it becomes clear there's something wrong with your eyes. For me, it was being very nearsighted. And it affected the way that I lived, right? So because I couldn't see very far, Uh, I missed out on people that were far from me trying to get my uh, attention. Uh, Because I couldn't see very far, I uh, changed up how I lived my life. So things that were important to me were up close. Or the only things that I paid any attention to were things that were up close. And I ignored everything that was far. So back when I was in school, we used to have... uh, transparencies that they put on the screen. Remember those? Um, and I would sit in class and unless I sat next to somebody that could write well, I just didn't take notes because it was too hard. It was too much of a strain to look far out. Being nearsighted affected the way that I live. I couldn't evaluate things properly. I couldn't play ball the way that I want it to without my glasses or my contacts, I can't drive, Um, well, I can drive, but I would put uh, my life and everybody else's life in danger, Uh, I quickly found out my vision needed to be corrected if I was going to maneuver through life uh, the way that I hoped. And so in fourth grade, what I did was I got these glasses. Now, the glasses didn't cure my problem. I am still incredibly nearsighted. I'm so nearsighted that when I go to the doctor, right, to have that eye exam and that test, um, and they say, read as far down as you can read, uh, I say, well, I know that the big one is an E, but I can't really see it, so just go ahead and put the things on my eyes and let's start to talk about one or two, one or two, which one looks better. (laughs) Spiritually... um, all of us are incredibly nearsighted. I think just the way that you and I live through life, uh, there is a distance that we can see, but we don't see far past that. Right? So I think the extent of which all of us can see, the extent that we, we, uh, we all look, is up until this point called death. You and I know that we'll die, we're not sure how. We're not sure when. But we know that it's coming, and that's kind of the outskirts of the range of what we look at. So it makes it hard, especially as you and I face hard times in life. Suffering is the eye test of, 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 of this life. Suffering, uh, more than anything else, I think it shows us how nearsighted all of us are how much we're so consumed with the things that are right in front of us, and we don't have the ability to look farther. And here's why I say that. Because I think um, uh, our perspective is so skewed that we have these uh, inefficient or wrong ways of thinking about suffering. And here's what I mean by that. There's some of us in this room, and the dividing line, the way that we think of suffering, in this life as we think of everybody else that we see is this. There are some people that suffer and some people that don't. Let Instagram tell it and we feel like that there are certain folks who just don't have hard times and certain folks that do. So do you know what we do? We spend all of our time trying to arrange our lives in such a way where we don't have to deal with anything hard. So we choose churches, we choose friendships, we choose jobs, we choose where we'll live to avoid suffering. But what you quickly find out is that we can't outrun suffering any more than a cheetah can outrun its tail. It finds you. There is no detour that you can take to get you around the hard times that you face. So it's not that some, some folks suffer and some folks don't. You can't steer clear of it. And you may step back and say, well, John, I know that to be true. But here's what I think. I think that in the world, it's not that there's some people that have hard times and some people that, do, that don't the way that I like to divide things is this. There's some people who suffer more and some people that suffer less. And I want to be in the less category. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to pick the churches that I go to. I'm going to pick uh, the religion that I've picked. I'm going to pick the friendships I have. I'm going to pick where I live based on trying to suffer less. And I want you to know... um, it is impossible to quantify suffering. So to look at somebody else's life and to say, my life is harder than theirs or theirs is hard, hard, harder than mine, is incredibly hard because you don't have insight into what they go through. But I do think that in trying to pursue a life where we suffer as less as we can, where we try to avoid hard times, I think what it reveals is that you and I have what's called this commitment to comfort. And here's what I mean by this commitment to comfort. How do you know if you're committed to something? You're committed to something if you can make a decision before hearing all of the details. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, John, um, I would like to purchase your daughter, what I'm not going to say is, well, how much, right? The details don't matter because I have a commitment to her, and there's no price that you can pay. But some of us are so committed to comfort that if we're challenged to do anything outside of what makes us comfortable, we respond in the same way. I don't have to hear the details, I've already made the decision. The decision that I have is to be comfortable. And I want you to know, if that's you, that is not the pathway to your best life. You will miss God's best for your life by being committed to avoiding the worst of this life. So if the dividing line is not, there are certain folks that uh, suffer and those that don't. Nor is it there are certain folks that suffer... For more and less, what is the better dividing line? I think the better category is this. In the world that we live in, there are people that are prepared and there are people that are unprepared. And so what the Bible does is it helps you and I to be prepared for the inevitabilities that will come our way. That's where we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. This is all about how do nearsighted people like us, who are as fearful of death as we are certain of it, how do nearsighted folks like us replace this fear that we have with faithfulness? And so this is going to be the eye test of sorts. So think of this as a time where you're at your optometrist. And with each verse, what's gonna take place is Jesus is just gonna add one more layer to help us see very clearly. Revelation 2, uh, verse 8. For those of y'all that weren't here last week, let me set a little bit of context. The book of Revelation is written to seven Asian churches. Jesus looks down. He sees that they are struggling in this time frame. And so what he does is he inspires this guy by the name of John who walked and talked with Christ. As he's in exile, Christ comes, gives him a vision of the victory that he's going to have, and he's going to challenge each of these churches to conquer. And one thing that we see is although this letter was written to them, It was written for us. And here's what I mean by that. As much as cultures and kings and times and people and methods of communication changes, people are people, sin is sin, problems are problems. So this book written thousands of years ago, is still just as applicable for us as it was the very first people that read this with fresh ink on a parchment. So let's start here. Verse 8, it says this. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Let me help you get a little bit of background so that you can see just how uh, similar this is for us. Smyrna was a city that went through gentrification. 590 BC, Smyrna was destroyed. It sat desolate for 300 years. A successor of Alexander the Great comes into this dead city and he creates this plan. What he says is, we're going to put in these roadways. We're going to build a new stadium We're going to put a library in for education. We're going to create this theater. We're even going to build a shrine. So one of the greatest poets of our day, so everybody knows that he's from here. And what they did was they resurrected this city from the dead and out of all of the cities named here in this book, This is the one city that is still around today. The city of Atlanta. Think of the west side of our town. It was dead. And what did they do? They put a stadium in. They put a belt line in. It's this city that rose from the dead that was resurrected. But what you have is a group of Christians sitting in a prosperous city that are being excluded from the political and religious life because they aren't getting in line. You got a group of Christians that are enduring these hard times because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. The commitment they had not to bow down and kiss the ring made them be branded as folks that were unpatriotic. Their commitment to Christ at this day and time, uh, it made them poor, right? Not poor how we think of poor, how all of my basic needs are met and I just don't have money to get extra. Their commitment to Christ made it almost impossible for some of these folks to feed their own families. And so here's what I want you to see just in that. Anybody that would say your commitment and faithfulness to Jesus is a pathway for you to get a Ferrari, what this group said was that my commitment and faithfulness to Jesus put me in line to get food stamps. It's inconsistent with the Bible And for most of Christian history, for anybody to think that Christianity is the pathway to prosperity and earthly riches. So what Jesus does is he sees this church that's enduring suffering and hard times for their faith, and through John he writes to them to encourage them to help repair their nearsightedness. And so the first thing that he says is this, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, look, thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and came to life. Like we talked about last week through these next weeks, every letter is going to start out with a specific name of Jesus meant to give you and I insight into his character so that it specifically applies to the problems that go on. So right here to a church that is frustrated, that feels like they're suffering and they're on the outskirts. The very first thing that he starts with is that this Jesus is the first and the last, which means this. He is sovereignly in control of history, which means this. When it comes to the historical timeline, the events that go on in the world and in your life, Jesus has built fences where nobody can trespass. So do you know what that means? It means anything that has happened in your life, regardless of how horrendous it is, was not chance. It was not an accident. As frustrating as it may feel, it happened because Jesus had allowed it to happen. He's the first and the last. There's nobody that can rearrange how he wants to lay this out. And that would seem frustrating to a group of folks that are on the outside that Jesus would allow them to go through all of this stuff, but he doesn't just stop there. Not only is he the first and the last, but he was the one, what? Who was dead and came to life. He's not just out there. This is a God that's been through some things. Jesus has faced the one thing that everybody here, regardless of how strong you may feel, he faced the one thing that everybody else is scared of, death. And he got up to tell his people that are enduring this hard time, that see death as the end of the word, that see death as the final word. Jesus starts off this letter to let them know Jesus has the final word. Death doesn't. This is more than just an allegory of about, he got up from the dead, so what you can do is you can conquer your problems. You can rise above financial death. You can rise above emotional death. You can rise above the death of your job, the death of the job. This is more than that. When the Bible talks about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that's shorthand for the gospel. It's shorthand for the good news of our sin is going to put us in the grave and leave us there. So the common thing that we all have here in this room is that death is in our future and the grave is our destiny. That's the way that you and I pay for our sin. Oh, but the good news of the gospel is that nobody has to pay for their sins that way. Jesus paid for our sins when he died for us. He paid for our sins when he went into the grave and when he rose from the grave. That was God saying that he accepted the payment. So anybody that puts their trust in him can be reminded that Jesus is not just one that raised from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and he's not God's only child. He's setting the pathway. Death does not have the final word. And then he goes on to verse 9. That's just the first part. For all of us that are scared of death, for us to be reminded that if, if all that you can see, if, if uh, you're so nearsighted, that all you can see is death, and on the other side of death that's Blurry. Jesus starts off and says, hey, if your sight line stops at death, you're too nearsighted. You've got to look past that. But then look here at verse 9. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Charles Spurgeon says this. As sure as God puts his children in the furnace of affliction, he will be with them in it. As Jesus says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know the slander. What he's not saying is, I know it as a spectator. He's saying, I know it as a stakeholder, somebody that shared in it. He's not just a witness, right? He's not sitting, watching on his divine TV the hard things that you've gone through and say, man, I know what that feels like because I've watched it. He's saying it because he intimately identifies with it. Jesus, the king of the universe, willingly came down to this earth and do you know what he experienced while he was here? Affliction. Poverty. Hard times. Friends that betrayed him. Do you know what he experienced while he was down here? People that he was trying to save. The religious leaders who were looked to by the rest of their nation as those that would lead them to God. What he experienced were people that were so-called God's people being the ones that caused him the most problems. It's one thing for you and I to live in a world where the rest of the world looks at us and they discount Christians, right? So we live in a world where um, if you tell somebody you're a Christian, the first thing that they think in your mind is, well, you're anti-gay. You're anti-choice, you're exclusive, you're intolerant, you're chauvinistic. right? It's one thing to live in a world where people just misunderstand Christianity. We expect that. We know that that's going to come. It's another thing to live in a world where you're discounted and slandered, not by folks that are outside, but folks that say that they're part of the family. It's one thing to live in the world that we are, to speak out against the racial and socioeconomic inequalities that exist in the world and being labeled as somebody that's divisive, not by folks outside the church, but folks that are inside of the church. It's one thing to see the anger and bitterness that exists in folks' heart because of real wrongs that are done to them. And to try to remind folks that, yo, 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 we're peacekeepers, we're peacemakers, we're sons of peace. And when you try to tone down somebody's vitriol and bitterness and sinful anger to be labeled as an Uncle Tom that's been bought by white evangelicalism. Not by folks from outside the church, folks inside the church. And what Jesus says right here to this church that's enduring these hard times to these people that are suffering is this. Your circumstances and other people's criticisms do not define you. He says, yo, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. But then he sets this contrast. But you were rich. I know that people outside are slandering you, but they ain't really God's people. Do you know what he calls them? A synagogue of Satan. So Satan is the chief slanderer and accuser. And what he's saying about this group that would slander folks that are trying to hold a standard, that what they're really doing is gathering around and furthering the cause, not of God himself, but of God's chief opponent. And so what Jesus does is he speaks to this church and what he lets them know and what he helps them see and what I want you to see is that your circumstances and people's criticism does not define your identity. And the question that I want to ask is this. Do you believe Jesus' words? The first thing is, do you listen? Do you listen to, do you hear what he's saying? Or are we so consumed with listening and liking and retweeting and favoriting and being in the know are our ears so filled not with god's word but what this world says that you and i are led to believe our circumstances our reality because that's what we hear about them the most do you listen to jesus do you do you take time in his word small challenge for you to do this week Split your week in two halves. Use the first half of the week and as best as you can, at the end of the day, track your time. Track how much time you spent on the internet, watching TV, on Facebook, on Twitter, reading. Right, Just track it the first half of the week. And then track how much time you spent In God's word or in conversation with God's people, rehearsing what Christ says about us. Track that the first half of the week. And then the back half of the week, do your best to invert the proportions. And come back next week and tell me if that made a difference. First half, track how much time you spent. Back half, switch it. And let me know if things Change the more and more that you listen to Jesus. Here's what I love about what he does. Five of the letters that he gives to the churches have words of rebuke and words of correction, right? You're going the wrong way, change, turn around. This letter's not like that. It's this church that is enduring hard times. And he doesn't have any words of rebuke. But all words of encouragement keep on going forward. And I want you to know, there is no such thing as a perfect church. But even an imperfect church doesn't always need to hear words of rebuke or change. Sometimes one of the best things that we can do is maybe shelf things that folks need to change. Look at where they're doing things right and encourage and push them along. This is what Jesus does to this church. He tells them to lift their heads up. I know the stories of what goes on in this room. I know that there's so much struggle, so much suffering, so many hard things that you and I can tend to walk into this place with our heads down and walk out with our heads hung even lower. And what Jesus is saying to us is that your problems, your hardships, uh, do not define who you are. Death does not have the final word. Jesus does. And the final word that he gives to all of us to put our trust in him is not death, but life. So what that means is that you can stand up and walk out of here with your head held high. Not in arrogance or pride, but with a sense of dignity, that regardless of what comes my way, nothing can hold me back from the destiny that God has has provided for me. Jesus is saying this because he wants you and I to conquer. Jesus isn't as nearsighted as we are, and so here's really where the we're going to get to the point of all of this. Verse 10. He's going to give us perspective. This is the point in time when you're sitting in the chair at the optometrist, that you really start to see things very, very clearly, and you're filled with this hope. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us a perspective on suffering, and in this one verse... I think there's five truths, five things that you need to know. Four things about what suffering is, and one thing that it's not. I'm going to go through these really quickly. Let me read verse 10. It says this. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in a prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Five things quick. There's a lot of things to explain. The very first one is this. Suffering is is permitted, or it's predicted. It is promised, right? Don't be afraid, look, of what you are about to suffer. What he's saying is that suffering is, is never by accident. Nobody slips there. Nobody finds themselves in hard times and God looks up from a book that he's reading and says, oh snap, I wish I would have known and I would have changed things. What he's saying is he wants all of us to know that we all have an appointment. It is never by accident. Two. Suffering is permitted. It's allowed. Look here. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And then he goes on and says this. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. Listen here. We live in a spiritual world. The spiritual realities of the world that we live in are the things that are the most real, or the things that will endure the longest. So Jesus is warning this church, not just that suffering is promised, but sometimes in our life, the suffering that comes our way is not a result of the bad that you and I have done. It is the result of the devil, the real and actual enemy of God, an enemy of our souls that is after us. But it's permitted, which means this. There is no depth to the bottom of the evil that is in the devil's heart. But there is a length to the leash that he's on. He is a rabid dog with a short leash. There is no cosmic battle between good and evil. Jesus has already won. God is supreme. He's not going to get to the end of this thing and say, hey, let's do best of three. I wasn't prepared. What he's saying is that in this world that we live in, Jesus has already won. However, he does want to prepare us for that we have a real enemy of our souls that is at work, and I love how he attributes the devil to the suffering that this church will face in order, one, for them to know that they're outmatched. The only way that they're going to solve this thing is with the help of God, but not just that they're outmatched, but so that they direct their bitterness and anger to the right person. That the Bible is very, very clear when it says, look, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So, although it's going to be the Romans that actually put this group of folks in jail, what he's saying is the Romans don't deserve your bitterness. Satan does. Give that to him. Give them your forgiveness, your forgiveness. Patience. We are never justified in showing bitterness to anybody that bears the image of God because nobody that bears the image of God is the enemy of our souls. So the same thing that Jesus said to the people that put him on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is the same response that you and I had. Listen. While we live in this world, Satan is on a leash. He has very real power to do very real harm in the world that we live in. But the reason why this book is such an encouragement to our soul is that we know at the end of the day, Satan is not going to have scored a single bucket. Every basket that he scores is for the opposing team. Satan had tried to make God look like a villain in the garden with Adam and Eve, and all that he did was set the scene for God's love to be displayed in a way that it might not have been had there been no sin in the world. Suffering is promised. Suffering is permitted. Suffering is purposeful. It says here, Satan will throw some of you in prison to test you. Don't think of this test like an SAT that you have to pass or fail. Think of this like a, a, a test that you would take on Ancestry.com. That this test is just made to show what's inside of you. That you didn't know what was there. And, and so what God does is he puts his people in hard times to test them. To show them what's inside of them. To show them that greater is he that is in us is in the world to show us the same thing that he wanted to show Job, the same thing that he wanted to show to anybody else, is that God is worth more than the comforts that he gives. It would be like a millionaire that walks in to a house full of people that claim they have all this love for him and for him to say, I've lost it all in the stock market. And then they get a bunch of folks to get up and leave. And the folks that stayed, he's like, nah, I was just playing. I really have it all. I just did it to test you to see who's here that really loves me. This is it. So even in Satan trying to persecute the people of God, all that it does is it it, it just works inside of us to show this love that we have for God, to show that he's more valuable than the comfort that we have. And the fourth thing is this, it's predicted. It is permitted. It's allowed by God. It's purposeful. And the fourth one is this. It's painful. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction. Here's what I want you to see. The Bible is not quiet about the future glory that we will inherit. The Bible is honest about one day the pain of this world will be gone. But the Bible is not quiet about the very hard and real things that we face in this life. Tears don't dry up just because you know that things will be okay. And to try to make anybody not feel pain or to say, It's going to be all right and wonder why folks are still in anguish is to be dishonest and reflect the truths that are here in God's word. The sufferings that you and I face are painful. Now you say, well, John, he says, don't be afraid. But all four of those things seem very fearful. I don't want it to be promised. I don't want him to like... Put Satan down. Don't, don't put him on a leash. I don't care about being tested. I don't want it to be painful. So how am I not supposed to be afraid? Because all four of those things are what suffering is. But the fifth thing, look at what it's not. Throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Let, let me explain what that means. From a broad sense, you look, and even defining a length of time tells you that it is not permanent. Suffering is hard, it's painful, it's permitted, it's allowed, but it's not permanent. It's easy when we're in the midst of things to feel like things are always going to be this way, but it's very, very clear that it's not. What he alludes to is Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel, the guy that we read about here, was brought into a kingdom where they wanted him to submit to this king and treat him as God. And Daniel says, I ain't going to do it. And so what they says is, we're going to put you to this test. They wanted everybody, in order to profess their allegiance to this God and this uh, uh, king, to eat the food that the rest of the folks ate. And so what he said is, I'm going to suffer. And listen, church, it is suffering of the worst sorts. What he said is this, for 10 days... I'm only going to eat vegetables. (laughs) And it's not just because of the meat, but by partaking in this food, what he's saying is, that would say something about my God that is untrue. And I don't have a commitment to comfort. I've got a commitment to my God. And so what he says is, look, for 10 days will endure, and then at the end of these 10 days, y'all judge. And so what God did was he preserved them for these 10 days. So what he does is he calls this back and helps them know, listen, the suffering that you're facing right now, it may be painful, but it is not permanent. It is not the final word. He ends off and says this, Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, When people were thrown in prison back in these days, it was not prison like you and I think of it, right? Nobody just got life in jail. Jail was a place that you were held until they deported you or they put you to death. So to be thrown in jail is not, I'm going to get out soon. To be thrown in jail is to sit with the anxiety of, I am going to die soon. And what he says is, you know, those that are faithful to the point of death, I will give you the crown of life. Or I think that the point of all of this is this. Focusing on eternal life is the thing that makes us faithful until death, not fearful of it. That as we focus not on this life, but on the life to, to, to come, those are the lenses that make us faithful until we die and not being fearful of dying. The best way I know to explain this and to really help this hit home is to tell you this story. It's a true story of a guy by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp lived in this day and time. Most folks think that he was a disciple of John. Polycarp was born and raised in Smyrna. Hometown boy, grew up, experienced all of what they went through, probably read this letter over and over and over. As he grew up, he became the pastor of this church out in Smyrna. Now as he was at this church, you had a bunch of folks that were Jews slander him to the point where Rome was getting ready to put him to death. So as he's standing in front of the guy that has the power of death in his hand, the guy says to him, hey, Polycarp, have respect for your old age. Deny Christ so that we don't have to put you to death. And here's what he says. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior who has saved me? people were mad that he didn't deny Christ and there's this uproar and so this guy comes to him again and is like yo I don't want to kill you and he says this look I have wild beasts at hand and to these I'll cast you if you don't repent of your commitment to Christ and this 86 year old man says this call the beasts if you want for I'm not accustomed of repenting from something that is better to something that is worse. I'm not going to change my mind. Well, then this guy comes and says this, yo, I'll cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you don't like beasts, if you will not repent. And listen closely to the words this 86-year-old man says, you threaten me with fire, which will burn for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment, of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why tarriest thou? What are y'all waiting for? Bring the beast, bring the fire, bring whatever else you choose. You shall not, by the beast or by fire, move me to deny my Christ, my Lord and Savior. As they're preparing the, the fire and they're getting ready to put him on the stake and light it up, what they did at this time was they nailed people to this stake so that when the fire got hot, they wouldn't move. Hear what he says. He says this. I don't need any nails. Leave me as I am. For he that gave me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. And they tied him to the stake and for his faith, he burned alive. And his example Set a pattern for Christians that would die, not just in Smyrna, but in Philadelphia, not the one that's here, but the one that was out there. I heard one person say one time that um, Christians never die, Christians get planted. Our bodies go in the grave. But what comes up is fruit that will endure to eternal life. And I just want you to hear this. The reason why I bring all of that stuff up is that we can spend time trying to make this message of enduring suffering applicable to all of us with the things that go on in our life, with the social outrage and ostracism and all that stuff that we may feel, we could spend our time listening to people who didn't just get unfollowed, who didn't just lose their jobs, but people who lost their lives. And to be reminded that they didn't have anything else that you and I don't have. If this truth is good enough to give somebody the strength to be faithful until a brutal death being burned alive. If this truth is good enough to give our Lord and Savior the strength not to be consumed with what went on right in front of him. But to look at what his death would accomplish for all of us. And I want you all to know it's good enough for us. The way that you and I find ourselves prepared to suffer well in this world is by constantly thinking of another world. Verse 11, and I'm closing, it says this, look. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is written for eavesdroppers. My daughter has a nasty habit of whenever I open up a bag of chips within a mile of where she is, um, she looks up, mouth wide open, and she thinks that it's for her. And so what I have to tell her constantly is just because you heard it, it doesn't mean that it's for you. I'm minding my own business. I need you to mind yours. That is not what John says here. Listen, what, what John is saying is, no, no, listen. Anybody that has ears to hear, this is for you. So if you're in here and you're not a Christian, here's what I mean by not a Christian. What I don't mean is um, you haven't said a prayer at one point in time. There's lots of folks that have said prayers that are not Christian. What I don't mean is that you do your best to, You know, try to live right. What I don't mean is that you feel bad when you've done wrong. Here's what I mean by a Christian. If you are not somebody who daily gets up, who the pattern of your life is, Jesus has a say-so in everything of my life. The job that I pick, the friends that I have, the conflict that I won't let endure, the dreams, the aspirations, where I live, that if you are not somebody who sees Jesus worthy enough of having complete control of your life, what I want you to know is this was written as an invitation for you. If you're gripped with Life is so hard, I can't endure the things that are right in front of me. I find myself constantly depressed and discouraged and hopeless and feeling like there is no end to the suffering in my life. I want you to know this is written for you. It's written as an invitation for you to come in and to do what uh, those of us in this room that have put our trust in Christ have done. And that saying, Lord... I want you to shape the direction of the rest of my life. I want you to have the keys. I I I don't just want you to uh have access to a suggestion box where you can tell me things that I should do and I'll take some time and consider those. I want you to be in the driver's seat and have the keys and use my life however you want to. If there's anybody in here that has hears to hear that, what he's saying is that this is for you. And the thing that he says is this, the one who conquers will never taste the second death. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. And I think the point that he's trying to make is this. The person that has their life shaped now by the life that's to come will never have to be concerned uh, about the death that only some of us will have to face. Here's what I mean. The reality of the life that we live in is that every one of us one day will die. Your death is as certain as the taxes that you paid this past week or should have paid this past week. Your death is certain, and that's not to make us sad. It's to make us sober. It's to remind us that one day all of us will die and we'll have to stand in front of God and face judgment. And what he's trying to tell this church is that there is a death that you can't control. You have no say-so if, uh, uh, if you will or will not be put six feet in the ground. But what he does say is that there is a life that's reserved for all of those that put their faith in Christ. And for those of us that look not to this life but to the next, it changes the shape of our life now. And here's how our our life changes. We live with the reality that the fear of death no longer sets the course of our lives. How would you live if you weren't scared of dying? If you weren't fearful of death, what would you do? Where would you move to? Who would you go out of your way to help? How would you spend your life if you knew you were invincible and you would not die? If that's hard for you to answer, try this one. What are some places right now that you're like, there's no place, or there's no way that I'd go there. What are neighborhoods in Atlanta that you may feel God has tugged on your heart to go to, but you said, there's no way that I'd move there because that would feel like a death sentence. What are places that God may have burdened your heart for, not just in here, but across the world that you said, there's no way that I'd go there because it's unsafe. It doesn't make sense that could mean the end of my life. That could be the end of my dreams. That could mean the end of my goals. And what I want to say is for the Christian who has their eyes set on eternal life, that doesn't have to be an issue. Fear is the enemy of faith. What I don't mean is that fear and faith can never be roommates. They can't. They often occupy the same heart. But what I am saying for the Christian is that though fear and faith may live in the same heart, uh, fear should never have its name on the lease. Fear should never be the one that dictates what it is that we do or don't do. Because of what Christ has done, you and I have nothing to fear. Death is going to come to all, the first one at least, but we have a life that goes beyond death. A few quick ways that we can put that into practice this week, and the very first one is this. Remember, death isn't the finish line, and I say to remember, not just for you, but for the church At large, one of the best ways that we can remember is ensuring that we remind one another of the promises that we have in God's word. And those reminders come as you and I commit ourselves to spiritual, uplifting conversation. There are lots of things that we can talk about. The NBA playoffs are in full effect Um, I know that there's friends, I know that there's goals, I know there's all these things that we have. But one of the unique things that makes us a church is that all of us believe that these words here are true. One of the things that makes us human is that all of us forget that these things are, are, are true. So the best antidote for our humanity is finding ourselves in a church where we see it as our task and obligation to remind one another We don't have to be limited in the things that we do in this life by this fear of death. As we close and we pray, um, I want to take time and pray specifically. And the thing I want to pray specifically for um, are those that live in parts of this world was they hear about the death of Christians. They don't really have to work hard to picture it because they have family and friends that have gone through that very thing. Um, In the world that we live in right now, China, Egypt, uh, Syria, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, India, Iraq, and Turkey, A Newsweek report came out a few years ago, and it said in 2015 to 2017, things for them are very much like things were for this church back in the old days. So there are very real Christians that are being killed for their commitment to the Lord right now. And we make so much uh, about the obligation that we have to the local church that you and I can tend to forget. We are part of a large family we have an obligation and a responsibility to pray for those. The Newsweek report said this. Out of all of those spots that I listed, the only place that didn't get worse in between 2015 and 2017 was Syria. And they said the reason why it didn't get any worse was because things couldn't get any worse. In the day and age that we live in, A world that is more connected than ever. You and I can do so much to encourage our brothers and sisters across the world. And one of the first things that we can do is to be informed. One of the best ways that we can be informed as we leave church and you get on Twitter, search for the name Karen Ellis on Twitter. Um, she writes a lot about the church that's persecuted and it would be a great tool for uh, those of you that want to take some time and pray more. As we close and pray, we want to pray that God does this in our hearts, but we also want to pray specifically for our brothers and sisters across the world that find themselves helpless and hopeless. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus to thank you for the fact that... um, Even if suffering is not on the horizon uh, for us, even if we don't see it, Father, uh, you've written in your word that we should be prepared for it because uh, it may come as a surprise to us in a way that it doesn't to you. So I pray that you would help us to be a church that constantly looks to and talks about the world to come, Father. Help us to be a group of folks that are filled with a sense of Hope because we're reminded of the work that your son did on on the cross to save us, Father. Lord, as we enjoy the comforts that come from being able to worship freely, would you help us to steward those comforts faithfully, Father? Lord, help us as a church to be the type of church that would not just pray for people all the way across the world that need and, and, and encouragement to persevere in their faith, but help us to be the type of um, church, Lord, that would send people to those places that have those need, Father. I pray that we would be groups of folks that are filled with courage, Lord, that we would be reminded that Lord, death is going to come to all of us whether we like it or not. And in light of that, you've called us to steward our lives for your glory. Help us not to choose the path of least resistance, Father, Help us to choose the path of greatest glory for your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.